These systems will use these mathematical models to identify patterns based on what it's seen. They recognize when something fits a particular pattern to say this is X. You know, the larger the N, the faster the, your research can move. The UK is now sequencing all newborns. If you can identify a problem you can fix, you can fix it up front and that child will never have to deal with it again. I'd rather know about this and manage this up front than have it sneak up on me and it be too late. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, you are in for such an interesting and relevant conversation today. Every single day, technology, AI is affecting our lives more and more. It's kind of scary, kind of shocking. Where is it going? It's also very exciting. It's something I love thinking about anyways. So of course, it gets even better when I get to talk about it in the context of how it will affect our health. Harry Glorikian is at the forefront of the future of health when it comes to technology. We talk about so many things in today's episode, including the future of testing and data collection, DNA testing and genomics, virtual trials, the concept of sentience and transferring consciousness, of course, chat GPT, and so much more. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think about today's episode. Please let me know what you think in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love, and then find the Friday announcement post on Instagram, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. We do talk about a lot of things in today's episode. There will be a full transcript as well as links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash future you. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, clean beauty and safe skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Harry Glorikian. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation I'm about to have. It is about so many passions of mine. First of all, it's about something that we talk about on this show all the time, which is health and wellness and biohacking surrounding that. Then it's about a second aspect, which is also something I am personally obsessed with, which is the role of artificial intelligence and what all of this actually looks like practically in the future. So I am here today with Harry Glorikian. He is the host of a podcast called the Harry Glorikian Podcast. He's also a global business expert, a healthcare entrepreneur, an author. His team reached out to me for his newest book called The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. So I saw that title and there were so many keywords, like I said, that I'm just obsessed with. So I was an immediate yes. I read the book and it's pretty mind-blowing, friends. We'll get into it in today's show, but it really just paints a picture of where we are headed when it comes to health and wellness and what that's going to look like. Well, now, I think to an extent that some people don't even realize and in the future, just as far as tracking our own health, taking charge of our own health, hospital systems, how that might manifest, patient care, things like genomic testing and you know gene editing. There's so much in here. So I, I'm just really, really excited about this conversation. So Harry, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I have so many questions for you, but to start things off, he's laughing because we were talking before about how many questions I sent him. To start things off though, you talk about your background in the book. Could you tell listeners a little bit about your background? What led you to doing what you're doing today? Have you always been interested in artificial intelligence and all this stuff? I will say as a quick side note, 
you reference Star Trek a lot in the book and I'm obsessed with Star Trek. So, <laughs> so like growing up, I was like, I was like a Trekkie from like age 10 onward. So I really appreciate that aspect of it. But, <laughs> but in any case, your background, what led you to doing everything that you're doing today with all of this work? So I've, I've always been in the field of healthcare and life sciences. I, I started out my career in a startup that was doing pathology, or actually we were doing what I would consider the first part of precision medicine. We were doing something called immunohistochemistry, where we could see you know, the receptors on the cells and able to help a pathologist figure out like is a woman estrogen receptor positive or uh, progesterone receptor positive, and therefore it would influence their treatment. And before that, you would basically grind up the tissue and use radioactive material, and they would come up with, you know, a fentanyl number and sort of make a determination on that. And for me, that was like a wild guess, as opposed to, you know, a, a focused decision that you would make based on that next level of data. And then I, you know, worked in that space for a while. I had my own lab. I built it. I sold it. Then I went to go work for a company called Applied Biosystems. Very lucky, again, being at the bleeding edge of genomics. And we were at the forefront finishing or doing the human genome through our sister company, Solera Genomics. And we made all the instruments and everything to make that happen which I have to tell you is still probably the funnest time in my career. If I had to pick a time, it's, you know, when, when we announced the genome, it's, it's amazing to see thousands of people walking on air because they're so, you know, super excited. I left there. I started a strategy consulting firm that I grew and I sold to a private equity fund. It was at the tail, you know, it was sort of at the end of that where I was like, wait a minute, once they passed the reinvestment and recovery act and everybody is forced to adopt an electronic health record everything is going to change from a data perspective and so i ended up writing my first book moneyball medicine to capture areas that were going to be fundamentally changed by data and data analytics and then of course i got to comment of it's a little complex of what you've written. So can you, you know, can you write a future you for the average person? Which I must admit was a little challenging because you take a lot of information for granted. And so I ended up writing that, publishing that. I also have my podcast where I interview people on the intersection of data and biology and what they're doing and the impact that it's going to have. So I, I've always been sorting out that bleeding edge of science and technology have been lucky enough. And then understanding about data and the impact of it and playing with it and designing systems that, that would hopefully answer that next question. And so I thought, okay, let, this is definitely going to be a need for people to understand how this is going to impact them. And so I sort of play both sides of the fence. I play on the, you know, where the science is truly happening. And since I'm in venture capital, I'll, I invest and interact with those people a lot. But at the same time, I think translating that to everybody else out there so that they can understand how to take advantage of it is, is sort of that role needs to be played too as much as possible. 
Well, first of all, I want to say it does not show that you struggled in making the book approachable because it's very, very approachable. So good job there. I can thank my wife for that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you to her because it was, yeah, it was very, very readable. You touched on so many things I would love to talk about. Well, speaking of that approachability aspect, so you start off the book with a general discussion and explanation of you know, what AI is and how it actually works and how it compares to a human mind. Can we just like, as a foundation, talk about that? (laughs) Especially right now, it's really timely too. Because when did you release this book? What year? Not last December, the December before. Okay. Were you worried? I know I I asked a question, now I'm asking another question. But (laughs) when you released a book like this, do you worry about being dated really fast because of how fast technology is progressing? It depends on who the reader is. What I have found is that the vast majority of people are not current. Current is an understatement. Humans aren't designed to process at the rate that things are changing, which is part of the reason why I wanted to write this stuff, because I was like, "Uh oh, like, You know, I have people who read the book and go, so this is going to happen in the future. I'm like, no, no, no. Everything in the book has already happened or is happening, right? It's just, you have to look at it from a, like, like you're looking at an evolutionary curve, except the curve is, is being crunched because of how fast everything is happening. So in my last book, I have a quote, you know, the difference between evolution and revolution is time. Oh, that's a good quote. (laughs) I like that. That completely makes sense. That's why even in the intro, I was saying like, you know, it's the future, but it's also things happening now. And I, yeah, I really think a lot of people don't realize all of this is happening. Speaking of that timeline, how do you feel about this concept of the singularity and that, you know, AI will reach this point where it'll just exponentially grow and sort of take over like really quick? Skeptical. You know, I'm, I'm watching and very intrigued and very like, you know, trying to keep up with, you know, what's happening on the GPT front. And you can see how it's moving forward very fast, right? Now, you know, if you really look under the hood, it's, it, there's a lot of mathematical analysis and trickery going on it, but you know, you and I could have a discussion of what is truly human understanding, right? Because we consume information, we process, and then we quote, we have an understanding, right? Based on the information that we've consumed. Sort of similar to what's happening on the GPT front. Do, does GPT understand purpose? Probably not. We understand purpose. So, you know, there's some subtle differences between the way that we look at the world and do things and the way the machine does, right? But it's moving super fast. I, I just don't see the AI sentient thing happening like overnight. But if you think about something like, you know, ChatGPT, did they really know what they had when they released it in a chat format? I don't think so. I think they released it and it blew up and now they're running to try to keep up. I'm so excited to be talking about this. So yeah. Okay. Cause one of my major questions, and I still want to provide like a foundational explanation of how AI works, but a huge question I had actually was because you talk about in the future you, this concept of black box algorithms and how 
AI and healthcare and things like that, you know, processes data, will give an answer, and we don't know how it reached that answer. <laughs> and so I was wondering if the parallel between that and healthcare and medicine versus something like chat GPT, because like my experience using chat GPT, at first it was like really fun. Like I was asking it questions, like fun things about <laughs> like what it knew about me and my shows. And sometimes it was right. Sometimes it was completely wrong. But what's interesting is the certainty with which it presents the information. And so I started using it to actually write some articles on a health supplement, one that I'm releasing. And so I would ask it to, you know, write a scientific blog post on this supplement and it would provide like references and like a really great article. And I was like, this is great. And so then I went and like actually read the articles it was referencing and it was just wrong. And so then (laughs) then I, I would like ask it, you know, can you, provide from the study where you got that information. And it would just be like, oh, I'm sorry, that was wrong. And so it's like, it's it's very concerning the level of certainty it presents this information with. All of that to say, how does that algorithm compare to like in healthcare when AI is used to present answers with data about things? Well, I mean, these large language models, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot going on back there, right? So I know I have not seen anyone be able to say, here are the exact steps and all the evidence and you know everything you need to do to be like, yep, I'm good. Uh, I'm, yes, you've shown me enough, right? I believe you. Because if you think about it and you're like, write me an essay. In reality, if you just took the essay and used it, like shame on you, right? It's write me an essay or give me ideas, and you should be able to sort of take it from there, right? I, th- I find that ChatGPT is great at, build me a four-day tour in San Francisco. I've got kids that are this age. I'm, it, does, it, it does a wonderful job. You still have to go in and fix a few things, but boy, it saved me, you know, an hour or so trying to design something for a friend of mine to go to San Francisco or summarize this for me and give me the highlights. Does a great job. Turn this into a tweet or a LinkedIn post. You know, it typically does a great job. I'm hearing from my friends in the coding world, GPT-4, it's really good. Like, is it perfect? No, but it's really good. Now, I've heard GPT-5 is an order of magnitude better than GPT-4. So that is a little scary. Because if it's if it's an order of magnitude of four, you got to be thinking: Do I really need half the people that I would call for help anymore? I'm not so sure. You know what's interesting? Because I was thinking, one of my main concerns is just the level of certainty with which it presents this information, and then it doesn't tell you that it was wrong until you ask it. I mean, literally it's kind of like talking to a psychopath was my experience. Cause like, like it's like very certain, very sure. And then you're like, you know, what about this? And then it's like, Oh, well, yeah, that was a lie. <laughs> you're just like, Okay. So I was thinking about the evolution through the versions and if it's getting more and more accurate, you're getting quote safer in the way that information is presented but what if there is still you know things that it's wrong about but then I guess with humans humans do the same thing you know they think they're correct I guess maybe the responsibility like you said is more on 
us receiving the information and fact checking. But but then the problem becomes, and I feel like this is me talking rather than asking you. <laughs> um, but then I wonder how like the problem becomes when we no longer know what's being created by AI versus humans. We're already there. True. Do you think a lot of what we read on the internet now is that? Not not yet. I do believe that there's more and more that's being created as we speak. You know, how far along it is, I don't know. But, I, you know, you can imagine that in the next 12 months, there's going to be a lot of content out there that was created on, you know, one of these systems. There's already images, right, that are people are creating the art and posting it. What's that word, that valley word? Do you know what I'm talking about? When it's artificial, but it's like, and it's mimicking human, but it's like not quite there. And so something is off. Do you know what I'm talking about? Something valley. Uncanny valley. Have you heard of uncanny valley? No. I would need to look it up more, but I was just wondering if that'll apply to words as well. I think it's the idea that like when you're so close to mimicking humans, but there's something like slightly off, it creates this psychological experience called uncanny valley. So that's a whole that's a whole tangent. So going back though to the general overarching question of how this actually works. So in the book, you do talk about artificial intelligence and you talk about how there's, you know, different words that can be used to describe it, but how does it compare to the human brain and humans? Let's starting with the human. Is everything that we do artificial intelligence or do we actually also do non, how would I say this? Is everything that we do the way artificial intelligence is intended to function? Or do we also do very simple data processing that would not be the equivalent of artificial intelligence? Does that make sense? Yeah. So look, I you know, AI is inspired by the way the brain works, right? But it's not it's not an exact mimic, right? If you think like there's chemistry and electrical signals and there's all sorts of things that, that the way our brain does things that are not necessarily the same as a electronic system, right? It's, it's, the brain is sort of complex. It's a biological organ. AI systems are sort of designed to simulate some of the cognitive process and functions, right? Like one of the ways that when we were talking about some of these systems, AI mimics the human brain is like a neural network, which is sort of, it is a mathematical model, right? That simulates the, how we think of biological neurons, right? And these networks are trained on large amounts of data and they learn to recognize patterns and then they make predictions based on that data. And so that's why sometimes these models are, are big, right? Because they're there are layers upon layers upon layers, and one layer is making a decision and passing it to the next layer and so on and so forth. It's similar, again, to the way neurons in the human brain communicate with each other through synapses, but, but different. So there's, there, we're trying to use the brain as a model, but it's, it doesn't exactly function the same way. What's the mind behind it that's noticing all the patterns? Or is it all just individual programs? Like what part of it is learning? I don't understand. <laughs> so these these systems will use these mathematical models to identify 
patterns based on what it's seen. In other words, take the cat example, right? You keep showing it all the cats and eventually it figures out when it sees it in a YouTube video, like, oh, that, that's a cat, right? I recognize it, right? I see the, either the, the, the I, I see the ear, I see the tail, I see the nose. I say, okay, that's a cat, right? But, you know, when you, if you really want it to be smart, right, you also want to show it dogs and other animals. And so it can tell the difference between, you know, the house cat and the dog and the parrot and everything else, right? It's, it starts to create patterns where it understands, understands, I hate that word because that, it's not an understanding. They recognize when something fits a particular pattern to say, this is X. So when we're, let's say, looking at MRI images, X-ray images, CT images, if the system has been trained to recognize something in that image, and that is also has the diagnosis information with it, it can say, hey, I think this is X, and the probability is it's this, right? Because the image may be not perfect or whatever, and it may look like two different things, and it says, okay, this one is probably the highest probability, and this one is the one below it. Mr. Doctor, you've got, you know, the experience, you know, you should be able to determine which one it is, but with a pretty high certainty of probability, it's one of these two or three. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It can recognize it, but we're pretty good at this. Remember, we've been looking at satellite images and looking for, you know, nuclear missile silos for a long time. With that recognition, you talk in the book about how health conditions where we have a lot of data is very, you know, it's ripe for AI. So things like cancer and heart disease, is it just the having the large amount of data that really helps or are some diseases more patternable than others? Like, are there some elusive diseases that just don't seem to have a pattern and AI struggles to figure them out even? Or is it all going to be a pattern in the end, you think? I mean, I think that I think if you gave it the right data, the probability of it figuring out is high. And I say that only because you see it do things every once in a while or highlight something and you're like, huh, would have never come up with that on my own. Like it just wouldn't have happened. And it noticed a pattern that I just wouldn't have noticed. Most people might wouldn't, wouldn't have noticed. The other thing is, is it's chewing on so much data. I think it's the human brain is not designed to see, might not, you know, can't see that, that pattern at that level of, of detail, right? We always say like a picture is worth a thousand words. That's our way of sometimes seeing a pattern, right? We put the picture together. We're like, aha, the line is moving in this direction, right? Now imagine the machine doing that with 20 lines, 30 lines, 50 lines, 100 lines. And so it can see, oh, wait a minute. But in these 100, these five always do this. These 10 always do that. And so it can start to sub-segment and see things that, you wouldn't, because we're not designed, we're just not designed to do that. You know, there's Ediometry, which is a, a local Boston company here. They have a, a system that sits in the intensive care unit. Now, if you've ever been in an intensive care unit, there's a lot of instruments in there and a lot of beeps and boops and, you know, 
where it's so much where a human being just isn't going to notice all the beeps and the boops and how they're all interacting. But their system will be able to alert someone and say, hey, listen, in the next, I don't know, 24, 48 hours, the patient in bed number three is going to have a problem. You should go in and do something. And so you go in there and you intervene. But if you didn't have that early warning system, am I going to notice all the a patient number three bed, all the beeps and the boops, do the analysis, see the outcome? Yep, I need to, you know, do something now, right? We're just not designed that way. So it's a, you know, can be an amazing tool to help us understand where we need to focus our attention sometimes. And there's dozens of these examples, right? There's a, I forget who it was, I want to say it was maybe Butterfly Networks with a portable ultrasound. It'll say like, nope, nope, move, you can give it to the average person. Move a little to the left, move a little up, move up, move, nope, move down, move, and it tells you how to manipulate the ultrasound sensor for you to get in a, image that's equivalent to a trained technician because the system in the background is constantly looking doing it gets calculations recalculating saying no nah, that's not good enough i need you to sort of you know fill in this gap for me by going up to the left and in the end you end up with a, a good image so there's a lot of ways that the technology will help us i need to make this molecule can the system suggest a different way of making it? Maybe faster, maybe cheaper, maybe I'm looking for, you know, a different property, I, whatever it is, but the system, you know, will look at all options. It may suggest something to the person that was like, wait, wait, I never learned that in school. They didn't teach me that. <laughs> I would have never come up with that pathway, but the machine doesn't have that limitation. Hi friends, do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I would like to see a poll of everybody, how they feel about you know, doctor only care with all of this and then doctor plus AI and then just AI. You do talk a lot in the book about will AI render doctors, you know, obsolete. It's so true. Going back to Star Trek and my love. I'm assuming you like Star Trek. Love it. Which series? Oh, the original one. But, you know, I, I mean, you know, more or less anything with Picard sort of got me too, right? But a lot of the other ones... I tried to get into Deep Space Nine and all the way. I, I, but, you know, anything with Picard in it or the original, and I can still watch the original today. Oh, me too. Oh, and I do. I do. But, you know, when you... So here's the difference, right? Before, like if you went back early enough, right? What did a doctor do, right? There was a limited amount of things a doctor could do for you. Because the technology wasn't there. And so you got a lot of personal attention, right? And, you know, most doctors knew you from cradle to grave to a certain degree. Then technology comes along and, oh my God, we can do everything, right? Well, now that person has to understand all these different things, how to apply them, how to use them. What do they mean? Okay, you're starting to ask for a lot from a human, and sorry, all doctors aren't on the upper echelon of the bell curve, right? It's, it's still a bell curve. And so you're expecting more from them? Well, but now there's an introduction of a technology that can help focus or identify things for them that it's just an assistant that's helping them with what they're going to do next. And so... If you look at a lot of the papers that are coming out, what I typically see is the machine scores X, you know, the doctor scores Y, you know, maybe one is a little bit better than the other, depending on the area. But when you put the two together, they outscore either one on their own. So it's the man, man plus machine ends up scoring higher. You know, do I want my physician pouring over data? No, I want my physician spending time with me. So if the system helps identify the problem or and or the solution, and we can get there faster, I'm all over it. I mean, a perfect example is Geisinger has a system that will look at you know brain scans. And if it sees a bleed in the brain, it will take that scan and actually move it to the front of the line so that the physician sees that first so that they can do something about it rather than let that person, you know, 
have that problem until they get there in sequential order. And so if you're that person, you'd be like, oh my God, thank God you guys had that system in place. Because, you know, we have a saying that time is tissue. And if you don't treat the problem at that moment, it just, there you see more tissue damage. The reason I was framing it with the, the Star Trek reference was it never occurred to me with that show. I'm guessing that was a conscious decision to make the Dr. McCoy very human, you know, like he's just an old country doctor. And like, and so you pointed out that, you know, cause Star Trek was so ahead of its time and it's very spot on with a lot of its predictions. And even there in that show, there's still a doctor. Like they didn't have the medical aspect completely replaced by computer technology. Like there was still a human involved, which I think is very telling. Yeah. I mean, you know, will we be able to automate certain things? Probably. You still want, you know, the human to validate it? Absolutely. <laughs> no, nobody's going to be happy with the computer, you know, giving them the bad news or coaching them on a treatment path right out of the gate. Uh, it may help them downstream to stay on the path, but not in the beginning. But, you know, you can see how, you know, if you're in sub-Saharan Africa and there's a portable ultrasound and the ultrasound helps that person take a better image, that's pretty helpful, right, where the doctor can't be there. Or there's some systems I'm looking at that are in the operating room where, you know, you can put the tumor into the machine, it would then take a slice and take an image and then the image would automatically go to the pathologist who needs to look at it. Normally, you'd have the pathologist in the operating room, but we have a shortage of those pathologists. So if the machine can sort of take that place and fill that gap and then show the pathologist the image and then highlight the parts in the image that the pathologist may want to focus on, everybody wins. Yeah. I mean, it seems like giving you a flashlight, I guess it's kind of like a flashlight that also might be wrong sometimes. So you have to (laughs) fact check. Well, these things have to be, you know, when you look, so here's the difference between, you know, GPT and medicine. In, In GPT, if it's wrong, like, okay, hopefully like the world is not coming to an end. If you were making that, that, that important of a decision, you should have been a little bit more diligent on what you were doing, right? In in the world of, of healthcare, right? We have clinical trials, FDA approval, people scrutinizing it, right? There's we typically have to jump through a lot of hoops to get something out there. And then you got to get everybody to adopt it. And while they're adopting it, they're playing with it too. You know, whereas GPT, everybody's trying to spoof it or get it to do something wrong are things you can't just ask it any question you want, right? It's designed to do a specific function and over and over and over again consistently. So the bar is higher. I'm not saying that there couldn't be a problem, let's say in its early days, but we're trying to do everything we can to like eliminate that, minimize it because people's lives are at stake. And then the fail safe is, the physician, 
right? To take a look at this and say, yes, no, right? And then move forward from there. What is the role, because you were just speaking about how basically a person getting bumped to the front of the line, having more of an issue. And you talk all throughout the book about how this can change the hospital experience and ER waiting rooms and things like that. What is the role of bias in these calculations? I'm really fascinated by how things like racial bias, for example, that they find that happening sometimes in the different, you know, all the different programs and modalities. Is that just because of the data set that's used? Like, why does that happen? Yeah, I mean, some of it is, you know, most of most of the time, it's the the data set that's the system is being trained on. You know, these models are only as good as the data they're trained on. So, if you, if you give it a biased data set, right, guess what? I mean, I, I'm sorry, but you know, if if you if you train your kid a certain way, they they end up a certain way too, right? So it's it's not dissimilar in that in that sense of you want to give it a representative data set that it can be trained on so that it can so it's not underrepresenting or overrepresenting a certain group of people that therefore it can give you a, a better answer and so every time there's a problem, right, there's a new, there's somebody that's willing to sell you something that's going to solve your problem, right? So I've seen a lot of these systems now where they're using encryption technology to bring in broader data sets from more areas without making the data accessible, but therefore being able to train the model on a broader data set. And, you know, even if a hospital took a model from another hospital from a different area, they would still want to test it out on their population to be like, you know, is it in my population, is it giving me, you know, the answers I, I think I should be getting? But as I said, like if you're going through, you know, FDA approval and you're going through a clinical trial and so forth, you will be hold, held to a higher standard and they're going to ask you in your trial who made up your population, right? And is it representative before they just let you get cleared and, you know, be released into the wild? I feel like I'm asking about all the fears concerning this, but you just mentioned using encrypted data from other sources. What is the concern? If the data is completely anonymous, and I feel like this is a naive question, but I, I've, I've wondered this, like what, does it matter if my data, even if it does get in the hands of somebody who shouldn't have it, like how does that affect me if it's anonymous? Well, if I, you know, if I do figure out it's you, it's, it's you know, that that's a problem. You know, because, well, first of all, the laws in this country, the United States specifically, just our lawmakers are so far behind it's not even funny how far behind they are. I mean, they can't tell the difference between Facebook and Google, right? Let alone any of the stuff that I'm talking about. So that is your first and foremost problem. Because you got to have the, you know, the laws and the systems in place so that everybody gets to a different level of, of, of taking some of this stuff seriously. I mean, look, I can go to Singapore, stick my... ATM card in and take out money and it's secure. 
I can't go from one hospital to the other and get my data. That's just not possible. It was, it was never designed that way from the ground up, which is mind-boggling to me that it's still like that to this day. And it won't change until it gets legislated that they need to change it. But let me give you an example. So I was talking to a company the other day that actually has come up with a cancer test for dogs. We were talking and there is no HIPAA for dog day. So she's like, Harry, we've got it all. I'm like, huh, yep, all, everything. I'm like, oh, that's, wow. You could do some really interesting, like, and she's like, yep. She's like, we can do some analysis and we can see things and we can move forward faster than anybody can in the human world because I have to get permission for every little thing, right? You can see how they're, what they're finding, the biomarkers, which biomarkers are the exact same ones that are in humans are showing up in dogs. So that drug actually will work on that dog. Or you, you see what I'm saying? All of a sudden, it just changes what you can do when the data becomes available. You almost wish that we could aggregate the data in the United States to move the ball forward faster. I mean, there's philosophical reasons that you may or may not want to do that. But from a pure science perspective, you know, the larger the N of data points you have, the faster the you know, your research can move and where you'll see things that you may not have seen before. I actually have a huge question about that because you talk in the book about virtual clinical trials or using AI to, yeah, basically to work with clinical trials and this concept of digital twins so you can get more data without actually needing more people. And then you talk about how it can be beneficial because, well, on top of that, so the digital twins concept Oh, wait, that's actually two different questions. Okay. <laughs> so starting with the digital twins concept, does creating all of that extra data, like, does that account for an actual data set that might look different from that? It seems like it would miss some things. Well, I mean, it shouldn't, right? So you, you, in, if you go into industry, this whole concept of digital twins is very sort of normal, right? I create a digital replica of my engine and now I can test it uh, all sorts of different ways, right? To figure out like what its tolerance is. And if I do something to it, will it react a different way? But I can play with it in the digital world without having to do it in the real world. And I can get all sorts of data from there that helps me make the one in the real world that much better. So can I do that with humans or human patients? And the answer is yes. And so I can create a digital replica of this person, and oh, by the way, the FDA accepts digital twins as part of your clinical trial. Now, you can't do 100% of the people that way, at least not yet, but let's say you need 100 people in your trial, and you just barely got to 80. I mean, it, you know, you, know you, you worked really hard, you got your 80, but you still need another 20. Could you supplement 20 people in your trial? And the answer is probably yes. And so you can now start your trial and run your trial, but 20 of them are digital twins of the model patient. And so when you do what you do, that digital twin should mimic the population of real patient. I guess it would depend on the setup of the study, but would that digital twin presumably 
be used as a control person in the study rather than the experimental, or can it be either side? Mm, it could be either side. I mean, it should be, you shouldn't say like one is going to fall in one and one is going to fall in the other because then you're treating one population different than you are everything else. I find this so interesting. And then what about the second sort of related question? Because you talk about how AI can help and it relates to what you just said about doing a clinical trial and not getting enough people to do the trial, how AI can help with patient selection and finding people that may be more appropriate for the trial and may respond better and like less side effects. But wouldn't that bias the trial to support, if it's like creating a drug, wouldn't that sort of bias the trial to support the drug it's creating if you're using AI to select patients that will, you know, react favorably in the trial? No. I mean, so if you look at something like Alzheimer's, right, the number of failures is significant, right? Most of it, I believe, is because we're not, we can't subselect for the population because we don't have a good way of substratifying the population into the right bids. But if you know that you can get to the right population that fits your trial, that would benefit from this drug, or you want to prove that your drug will benefit this population, you'd like to start with the right people to begin with. You don't want to give the drug to the absolute wrong people, do you? I guess it depends on the endpoint when the drug is created. Is it going to be mandated for that population that was the population that created it, rather than just like Alzheimer's overall? No. It wouldn't because these days, most, most of the drugs that are being released are, you got to fit in this, you know, you got to fit in this little box and then we prescribe it to you. That's more approachable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And, and, and the thing is, look, what the days of like, I'm going to give you a drug and the drugs are going to work on everybody, right? That those are few and far between these days, right? Whereas what you're finding is, you know, if you go back in time, you know, when somebody had breast cancers, they had breast cancer. That was it. It was sort of a big umbrella. Everybody fit under the umbrella. Well, but no, you know, as time has gone on, no, no, there's all these substratifications of breast cancer. What specific form of breast cancer do you have? And then the treatment paradigm for that would be different than one of the other ones. And so just like we say everybody's different, when you call one of these diseases a uh, diseases, typically it's not one form. There's multiple forms of that disease that we either know know it and we continue to dig down deeper, or we don't know it and we're finding out as we go along. I think that was the key piece of information I needed to understand why that's not concerning to me. I had like no idea about this. Was AI involved in speaking of Alzheimer's, the whole scandal about I should know more about this, but the whole scandal about the drugs not, you know, being based on falsified data, was AI involved in that discovery? I have no idea. Do you know what I'm talking about though? The recent Yes. Okay. I'm gonna Google. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that. It just occurred to me. I think my my closest experience, well, I, I you're talking about how it's everywhere and we don't even realize it. So I probably been involved in it a lot, but my own personal in my home experience has been, I have an aura ring and seeing when I got COVID, it was so interesting to A, it did predict it sort of, it didn't say COVID, but it, it knew I was not feeling well. And then I could really track my progression 
on the ring. It was really cool to see. Do you use any wearables yourself? Oh, yes. I actually, I had the Aura. I have my Apple Watch. I have a Whoop. I had tried the Levels CGM. I had tried the January CGM. What else am I missing? I have a Withing scale. I have the Withing blood pressure cuff. I, you know, I try and play with as many of these as I can. I have the Alive Core ECG, right? So I try to play with as many of these as I can to see the eight sleep bed. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm sure if my wife and my kids were here, they would they would remind me about another something that I was probably probably playing with at some point. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make 
epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. I, am, I actually have the eight sleep. I don't use it because it requires turning on the Wi-Fi at night and I like to turn off my Wi-Fi. So I like keep waiting. I need to reach out to them again. They were saying that it might update to not need the Wi-Fi in the future. So I've, I've had it for like two, maybe I've had it since the beginning, since it came out, just been like chilling on the bed, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> so I hope to turn it on someday. In the meantime, I've just been using Uller. So going back to something you mentioned in the beginning, which was your involvement in the human genome and that excitement. One question to start off, why, did, and you talk about this in the book, but why did we think there were way more genes than there ended up being? Didn't we originally think it was like millions and then it was like less and less and less? Well, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? Before you go and poke around in an area, right? And I have, there's so many examples of that where I've been with incredibly brilliant people and they make some declarative statement and you're sort of scratching your head going, all right, they're the experts. I mean, theoretically, right? They should know. And then you, you know, once you dig into it, you're like, no, no, (laughs) that, that's, that's not, that's not how it happened. Not accurate. You know, I mean, if you, I have stories of when I was at ABI and people would say something and then you'd find out later that, no, we dug into that and that's not exactly how it came out. Everything happening with that, it's really cool. My brother's fiance is actually, she just graduated, but her degree is in genetic counseling. So she's currently looking for a job in that sphere. So what do you see with that at present and the future of that as far as, you know, doing these genomic tests for newborns and looking at potential risks and addressing that, like practically, where do you think that's going? And what are your thoughts on the ethics surrounding it? So there's been a lot of work done on this out of Harvard, where they've actually asked parents, you know, do you want to know, are you glad you knew, you know, everything. And it always comes out with, I'm glad I knew, I'm glad I found out, right? And I haven't seen the other side of it necessarily. Where is this technology like the impact that the impact is huge? I mean, huge in a sense of I don't think most people appreciate how impactful it can be. I mean, if you have a child that is born and something's wrong, as a parent, right, you're going nuts trying to figure out what's wrong with your kid. It's funny because if if it was yourself, you might not. You might not be that involved, but when it's your kid, you're like trying to move mountains, trying to figure out what's what's going on. And in the past, we have a word called, you know, the, the diagnostic odyssey. It could have taken years to figure out what's going on. Whereas what we're seeing is when you can do a whole genome sequence, I think the world's record now is like, I should actually know because I interviewed the CEO of Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, and they hold the record. I think it's seven hours from sample to result to identify the issue with the child and be able to do something. That's huge. I want that. And I don't want it to take seven hours. I actually want it to be done in two hours, 
which, you know, we're going to get there, especially with AI on the back end, helping accelerate the analysis and also point out what the treatment, you know, should probably be. But the UK is now sequencing, I believe it's a million newborns, if not all newborns, I can't remember. And if you can identify a problem you can fix, you can fix it up front and that child will never have to deal with it again. What are some practical examples of things that's finding, just for listeners? Because you talk about the different, I think there's like three tiers of results for newborns. Like how expansive is this? What is this actually testing for? So when you're looking at the child, there's multiple levels of, of newborn screening tests, right? There's everything from hearing loss, congenital heart defects, metabolic disorders. And so, you know, you, you see things as far as from like hearing screening, blood spot screening, which, you know, all newborns get, although if you go state to state, there are some differences. But, you know, when you're doing sort of these genomics tests, you can see where you might be able to see like an issue with the heart. And so, well, that's a mechanical thing. Can I go in and fix that mechanical problem? Right before, like actually like a problem happens and later on in life, can I go and fix the problem now? And the answer is most of the time, I, I don't think I've heard a parent say, nope, don't fix that, right? I mean, there might be religious reasons why they, they say no, which I might disagree with, but you'd want to go in and make sure your baby is as you know healthy as possible, right? If you can fix something, you'll go in there and fix it. One of the examples that I have in the book, though, is is a little different. You sequence the baby, and they come and you know they they call up the mom, and they're like, "We have good news and bad news, right? We found something. Your baby boy is BRCA positive." You said, "Well, okay, but that's not going to you know technically should not affect the the baby boy, although men do develop breast cancer, but he's a carrier and they'll pass it on. But that means that they got it from someplace, so we should sequence." all the females in the family know, by the way, she be back BRCA positive. And so I remember asking her, you know, are you, are you happy? She goes, oh, totally. I rather know about this and manage this up front than have it sneak up on me and it be too late. So she would not have known had they not sequenced the baby. That's another poll I would like to see. I personally would want to know. If you want to see these you're calling it a poll. I've seen these in full-blown formal studies out of Robert Greene's lab at Harvard. If you Google him, you can see the papers that have been published literally asking and answering the questions that you have. Awesome. Thank you. I will do that. Does he poll about if there was predictive analysis for mortality, like personal mortality? I don't know all the questions that he's asked, but I know that everybody has pulled and pushed on him in a lot of different, like what you're doing is unethical. People don't want to know. People, you know, parents aren't ready. And he's gone and, and gone out there and like done formal studies where they really asked a lot of people on it. I think he's been on the right side of this all the time. I will definitely look up his work. And for listeners, I'll put links to it in the show notes personal question for you. I'm always really curious by this. Would you want to live forever? Did you see The Good Life? No. So 
think it was Netflix. It was The Good Life. It was, you know, you basically lived forever in what was supposed to be heaven. But let, let's not go into the, the premise of this show. It's actually quite funny, so I would recommend it. But no, I don't think so. I mean, I'd like to learn for the rest of my life. I got to be honest with you. I, I keep threatening to go back to school. But I don't think I'd want to live forever. Like, that would be, you know, I think I'd get bored after a while. And then you'd keep watching humans make the same mistakes. You'd be like, guys, can't you learn? But, you know, I don't think we were designed for that. I mean, if, if, if I was super healthy, you know, would I want to live for a good period of time? Yeah. Yeah. I'm having trouble seeing a hundred. I'm like, oh my God. You know, because aging is, is a tough, is tough when you're not in good health. I guess the short answer is no, but I don't know what the age I would put on uh, saying, okay, I'm done. It's, it's not 75, I can tell you that, but I don't think it's 120 either. You're actually, you're definitely in the majority, I think, because I ask a lot of guests on this show that question, because I'm, I always thought, I don't know, I, I think I want to live forever. And I, I think I always thought most people did, but it's hard for me to find somebody who says they want to. Do you know Sergey Young? He's kind of in your sphere. That sounds familiar. He does similar to you. He invests in well, longevity-related technology, but his book is called The Science and Technology of Growing Young. So he overlaps with a lot of the names that you talk about throughout your book. But he talks about in his book at the beginning, was he at the Vatican or something? He was somewhere on a seminar on aging, I think. I'm probably telling this story wrong. Regardless, it was a room of a lot of people like in this sphere, and they asked who would want to live forever. And he talked about how so few people, you know, raised their hand, but he's like all about it. <laughs> That's like his mission. So I'm always just really, really interested in people's thoughts on that. Well, he's a longevity investor, so I hope he believes that, right? Otherwise, getting getting people to invest in your fund might be a little challenging if you don't want to live by, uh, you know, what you're doing. Might be helpful. Do you think we could, because you talk a lot about, you know, 3D printing and implantables and all of this stuff, do you think we will one day be able to have a, you know, transfer consciousness to a bionic body? I hope not. I don't think so. I think, I don't know. I believe that there's chemistry that goes on. And that chemistry has a lot to do with who you are and you're made up of all your experiences. And I don't know how you would just port that over if you know what I mean. I believe that when we go through all of our experiences, the codes that are written, it, it, it's not a hard code necessarily that like a computer code. I believe it's, it's a malleable code, right? That changes over time. And so, you know, memories, some memories are stronger, some memories are weaker. I mean, that's, there's a lot of chemistry there. So I don't know how you would transfer that over and then have it be the same and then have it evolve over time the way that a human would evolve over time. It, it might be, you know, who knows what's going to happen 100 years from now, but I, 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 I don't see a logical path to get there per se. The quote logical path I would see would be, I don't know if we could ever do this, but replacing one thing at a time in a person until... So rather than like transferring it over, 
replacing piece by piece, cell by cell. So then they're eventually just all artificial. Right. But, but if you think about it, it's the differences in things that make you you, right? Your microbiome, your liver, your, I mean, your brain, right? And, and if somebody tells me like, we're going to find normal, I'm like, you guys are like, that's just walk. There's no normal. There's a spectrum. We are meant to evolve. We don't stay static. If we stood, you know, if we were static, we'd still be, you know, <laughs> with, we would be, we would not be where we are now. And so if you create something fully artificial, how does that evolve over time? And if it's static or, or normalized, then I don't know how you become you. Now, if you need an artificial pancreas or something like that, I get it. You know, it's, it's doing a process and you want it to do that process well. But what makes up the whole system, I think, needs to be given room to flex. Yeah, I guess the way it would have to evolve would be the central control center mind aspect, intelligence evolving, and then the intelligence would have to go in and actually upgrade itself. So it'd have to be like an external evolution imposed upon itself from the internal evolution of the mind. Like the actual internal mechanics couldn't evolve themselves naturally, if that makes sense. Look, sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I really just want some pretzels, right? And you're like, okay, let's think about this, Harry. Is that me wanting the pretzel or is it the microbiome? pushing you to want to press, right? Or the sweet or the this or the that, right? I mean, we're such a, an integrated system. And like when I say microbiome, we're not on our own, right? Because those are different bugs that are, we're living symbiotically with. To recreate that whole thing, if somebody says they'll, you know, that that's going to happen, I would be like, you're being naive. You're, you're being incredibly naive on the complexity of what you're trying to do. Have you worked with AI-related companies with the microbiome? Yeah, I've worked with, I've tried to work with companies in the AI space in almost every, every space that I could, you know, touch or talk to. What's your favorite space? I will be biased and say things like the genome and so forth. I'm, you know, I'm biased towards, because I do believe it has such a fundamental impact on everything. Anything that has DNA, it will have some level of impact on. I, I don't know how a country goes forward without that fundamental capability on, on multiple levels. So that would be one. I, I would say that the sensor technologies are also quite exciting on how you can monitor different things all at the same time and you can see like the system in the background being able to say something's wrong. You need to have this checked out or accurately be able to diagnose you in some way or encourage you to do something that would be positive to you. I mean, if you tell me where the future of healthcare medicine is going, I believe I would say that these technologies can be early warning systems and coaches to keep you healthy or encourage you to get healthier. If a person has done something 
like 23 and me, or for me, for example, years ago, this was years ago. Do you remember jeans for good on Facebook? I don't remember that one. It was basically, it was on Facebook and it was a project where they would basically give you the equivalent of 23 and me, but it was free because they were looking for research, you know, they were doing research. So I did that and very, again, naive question. If you've sequenced your your genome once in the past, do you need to do it again? Has anything changed? Like what, if I did it now, would it come out any different or could it come out different? I mean, if, if you're exposed to different chemicals and your environment and things like that, you, you can have, you know, mutations occur over time. So the technology itself for sequencing, does it evolve much or, or is it kind of like set and now it's more? Oh my God, it's, it's been, it's been evolving like crazy. We've, we have beat the pants off of Moore's law. Wow. What do you recommend for the best resource for people who want to sequence their genome at home? And you don't have to make a recommendation if you don't feel comfortable. A real medical level genome? Yeah. Okay. So I always have like, there's this line I have like the 23andMe, you know, I don't categorize as a true medical genome. Mm, Okay. That's good to know. You know, if you're looking for a long lost brother or something, yeah, yeah, or, you know, there are certain things that they look at. Yes. Is the data there, they just don't give it to you, or is the data not even there? You mean when you get your sequence information? Yes. Like, I know when I did genes for good, it gave me the, the raw data, and then it gave me some, like, information, but then I could run it through Prometheus and go down the rabbit hole. So I, I don't know what level of detail that genes for good does, but, like, when I did my genome, I went straight to Illumina which is one of the sequencing companies. And they had a program where they would do your gene sequence, give you information on what was a validated marker. Like if it was, you know, like not validated, they, they didn't tell you. They would give you your data and you could opt out of sharing it with anybody else. So you didn't have to give it up to someone, right? And so that's the one I did. I fortunately have an incredibly boring genome. Which, you know, in most circumstances, you never want to be boring. But this one, this is a good one. You want to be boring. And I learned a couple things, right? Like I shouldn't, if I'm on a long flight, I should get up and walk around more because I, I, I can, I have a higher propensity to clot in my lower extremities or I take an, an aspirin before I get on a long flight as well as walk around. Right. So I've, I've learned some precautionary things. I've understood what drugs I metabolize and don't metabolize well. There's a bunch of them. I, you know, I don't think I will ever, ever, ever take those drugs, but they, they're on the list nonetheless. But this is a you know medical grade level genome. So if people want to go get a medical grade genome, if there's a hospital in there, you know wherever they are physically that does a genomic analysis, you know they could go there. I know Harvard has a lab. I believe, it, you know, Bob Green runs that lab where they do whole genome analysis for individuals. A lot of the other ones that are available to consumers, I just, I, I just don't categorize as, as as true, you know, medical quality level genomic analysis. Hi, friends. Okay, so 
I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E 
with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Yeah, I know the James for Good data set, it gave me two. It gave me the normal one and it gave me an imputed one. And I was always like really on the fence about, do I look at the one where it's, you know, kind of filling in the data or do I not? I got really excited seeing a psychologist once and he told me that I could do a genomic test to see how I react to drugs. I was so excited. I was, <laughs> I was like, yes, please sign me up. So... Yes, all of this is just so fascinating. Well, I want to be really respectful of your time. One last topic that you touch on in the book, and I realize if we talk about this, I'm going to get the episode is going to get flagged. But um, <laughs> you do have really okay. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, you have a whole section on vaccines and COVID, which was very enlightening, especially the education you provided surrounding how the vaccine was seemingly, quote, rushed to market for COVID. I was just wondering if you could touch briefly on the evolution of AI with vaccines and what went down with that and if people's concerns are are valid or not and what the future might be with that. I mean, here's one of the big differences, right? When we've developed things in the past, everything happens serially for the most part. I do step A, then I do step B, then I do step C, right? And then, okay, but you know as well as I do, you do things serially, they just take a long time. During COVID, people took unbelievable levels of risk and they did a bunch of stuff in parallel. Like under normal circumstances, if you were developing a drug, you would not be building the manufacturing plant for the drug until you know the drug works, right? Because would you really, like, as CEO, would you be like, ah, I'm going to go spend, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars and just, I don't know if it's going to work. No, absolutely not. You'd be fired as CEO because you took unbelievable risk, right? Whereas during COVID, the government said, we will give you the money, please build the manufacturing plant. We're, we're hoping it works. And if it works, right, the whole thing comes together at one time. And so there were a lot of things happening in parallel because we were at war with this virus. So the normal course of do step one, then do step two, then do step three, they were all happening at the same time. So you took this, what would normally have taken, you know, five years at a minimum, and you crunched it down to about nine months. Now, on top of that, you are sequencing COVID. Well, I can tell you that when we sequenced SARS at Applied Biosystems with a group of people that really do what they're doing, it took us about four or five months with the old technology. With the new technology, they got the sequence in 48 hours. So five months, four or five months, 48 hours. So you got your sequence in 48 hours. You can send it out to everybody and be like, here's a sequence. Knock your socks off. Try to figure out how you're going to attack this thing. Now you got a ton of different companies 
that are working on it all at the same time. That's very unusual. We usually don't have that, right? All at the same time, trying to defeat this foe. Well, then you've got a company like Moderna, which is RNA, which is basically like a programmable process. So you're not developing like a small molecule or an antibody, or I have to inject this into an egg and grow. No, no, I'm going to program this thing to the spike protein. And so I believe within three or four days, they had the first shots on goal that they wanted to give a try. So you see how all of a sudden, with the help of technology and the advancement of chemistry and running all these things in parallel, you just shorten the time frame. So, I mean, what's an example? I mean, maybe GPT-3 is a great example, right? I'm going to write a five-page paper. You write papers, I write, like, writing five pages, you, you just don't, like, that doesn't happen in 10 or 15 minutes, right? But I go to GPT-3 and I'm like, here, look, here's the subject, here's the background, here's whatever. Write me the the paper, or at least write me the outline and give me some major points. It finishes that whole thing in 30 seconds. Okay. Now, what would have taken me maybe five, six, eight hours, or maybe a couple of days? I have my first sort of part of it in 30 seconds, and I can start to work with it from there. And so when you look at what we did on the sequencing side much faster, on the development of the first targets we're going to throw at this thing, much faster. We've already done the manufacturing facility that's sort of ready to go. Everybody's figured out how we're going to ship this around the world, by the way, not trivial, right? How the files that we're going to need for it, right? I mean, if you actually go through and listen to the stories of the groups that have been working on this, I, I think everybody deserves a medal. You know, there were only two companies that make the glass vials that you could put these vaccines in. You had to have them make enough glass vials, right, to get this out there. How much dry ice is out there to ship this stuff around? Do you have enough to ship everything where it used to go? All of these things had to come together for this to happen in that nine-month time frame. And I think that's the part that always people get caught up in the big, like some, I don't know, some major theory, and they're not looking at like the details of actually making all of this happened. It just didn't, there was a lot of technology, a lot of people, and a lot of effort to bring it all together. A lot more context than people probably realize. <laughs> oh, tremendous context. I mean, but, but most people, you know, look, most people are just, they don't put the time in to really understand, right? It's the microwave dinner thing, not the let me cook this thing from scratch view of the world. And so if you start to dig around and you start and you just say, okay, well, how, okay, this process starts at A and finishes at C. Holy, holy crap. <laughs> like all this, all these pieces have to come together, right? And how do we make them all happen? How do we speed them up? How do we apply technology to get to answers faster? And every other piece that needs to happen. And oh, by the way, if I stack these on top of each other, like these people have to take unbelievable risk financially to make this happen. And everybody did that to get to the end game. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are. Yeah, I remember when COVID first started, because right when it started, I was talking about getting flagged with this episode. Like when it first started, people were talking about it more without 
concerns of getting censored or anything like that. So I was like, I'm going to do some COVID episodes, <laughs> like right now. This is like in March. So I interviewed David Sinclair, like right at the beginning. We talked about the vaccine, and he, and he basically said that, yeah, we could have that like tomorrow. It's just a matter of basically what you just said, that all of the stuff is in place to get the basic information pretty fast. It's just a matter of then doing the the checking and the testing and fine-tuning. Was it two years later or a year later? Or was it that same year? I don't even remember now when it actually came out, the vaccine. We're in 23, 21, 21, early 21. Yeah. Awesome. Well, for listeners, definitely check out The Future You. There's so much in that book that we didn't even remotely touch on. And Harry gives all of these examples. I mean, speaking of, like he was saying in the beginning, there's all of these manifestations of AI that people don't even realize are happening and very cool companies and programs. It's very, very, I made a list of like, oh, I got to get that app. Oh, I got to get that. Like the skin cancer. I really want the skin cancer one that like looks at your skin. It's like, I should do that. There's new ones coming out all the time. I mean, it's, it's it really is hard to sort of keep up with. I mean, I do always tell people, depending on your medical condition, go talk to your doctor and all that, you know, but it's really, it's, I think that in the next three to five years, this is going to have such a profound impact on people's lives that they're, they're going to wonder how they live without it. I think so. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I have three, they're super rapid fire, super rapid fire questions. One, you talked about this in the book. So it is true that like when we're on a website and it's like, pick the picture of the car, that that's actually helping train AI. I was wondering if that was true. Yeah, it's kind of like the you know, the mechanical Turk thing where you're doing the work <laughs> for for someone else to train a system and, and and you're also convincing the system that you're a human being and not a robot. That's cool. Multitasking at its finest. Rapid fire question number two, what's your favorite Star Trek episode from the original series? If you describe the plot, I can probably tell you the title. Maybe. Oh, I, I'm not sure about the title. I'm trying to think of... Was it the one where they get they go onto the the planet where everybody has godlike powers and then Bones figures out the formula and gives them godlike powers? That's that's a good one. Godlike powers, not the one where they meet the god, the Greek gods. They meet the Greek gods, but remember, like they get they they get thrown around and everything else, and then Bones figures out they have this certain you know molecule in their system, if I remember correctly, and injects it into. Kirk and some of the others, and then they end up developing the you know, even more powerful. If it's the Greek gods ones, it's who mourns for Adonis. I love that episode. But it might be a different one. But the Greek gods ones. But it goes to show you, like, you know, modern technology, like we can, you can solve a lot of problems if you put the right, you know, minds and technology against solving that problem. I love it. I love it. And the last question is the question that I always end the show with. And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, I'm grateful for what I get to do every day. Honestly. I mean, I was, you know, when I think about it, I'm like, people do other things. I'm like, you know, I'm sure they love it. But for me personally, I would be bored out of my mind. I mean, I get to look at the coolest stuff and play with the coolest stuff that actually makes a difference in people's lives. It's just, I love it. I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. 
that I fell into what I'm doing and I love it. I love it so much as well. I feel the same. I'm like the consumer version. Like I just get to learn about all of this and then, you know, play with these things at home when they, when they reach the consumer manifestation. But I'm just so grateful. I'm just, it's so wonderful. I wish everybody could be living their, their passion because it makes life really wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything that you're doing. I will be eagerly following your content. How can people best follow your work? They can go to my website, which is www.glorikian.com. And my podcast is there. They can find it on Apple or Spotify or anything else, or links to my books and other things that I've talked about and written about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much again. It was incredible to connect with you and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got it.